Welcome to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, a place for healing and hope for couples impacted by betrayal resulting from infidelity and or sex addiction. Your hosts are Marnie Breaker and Dwayne Osterland, licensed marriage and family therapists, certified sex addiction therapists, and founders of respective treatment centers in Long Beach, Los Angeles, and San Diego, California. Marnie and Dwayne co-created Helping Couples Heal, a comprehensive program for couples recovering from betrayal trauma, including an in-person two-day workshop, an online aftercare program, and this podcast series is the first component of the program. Thank you for listening. Marnie and Dwayne are committed to helping you recover from the devastating impact of betrayal trauma and are honored to support you wherever you may be in your healing. If you've lost hope, you've come to the right place. Now, take a slow, deep breath. And let's begin with the Helping Couples Heal podcast. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Helping Couples Heal podcast. This is Marnie, and I am here with Dwayne. And we have today a really wonderful guest. And before I introduce her, I'd like to just share how I found her, because it's, I think, a a sweet little story. Many months ago, I was home and up very late after putting my son to sleep. And I opened up an email from my best friend from New York, and there was an endorsement from Maria Shriver about a book. And as I read it, I thought, oh my God, she's describing what so many of our listeners and our clients deal with on a daily basis in the aftermath of the discovery of betrayal. And I immediately went to her website and filled out the contact me form and submitted something to her because I knew that this was a discussion that we had to have. And so that is how we found our guest today. So Stephanie Sarazin is the author of the book, Soul Broken, a guidebook for your journey through ambiguous grief. Stephanie is also the founder of Rise Uprooted, which is an online community where people that are living with ambiguous grief come to get resources and support and suggestions for how to navigate Um, a very complex experience, which she has coined ambiguous grief. So we are going to be talking with Stephanie today, and Dwayne and I have both been really looking forward to having this conversation. So welcome, Stephanie, and thank you for joining us. Hi, Marnie and Dwayne. I'm so happy to be here talking with you both. Thanks for having me. Awesome to talk with you. I'm excited about this conversation, even though it could be a painful conversation. It's not a conversation that we want to have, but a necessary conversation. So I guess that's why I'm excited about it. So Stephanie, tell us a little bit about you and and your book and how this came to be, and we'll jump in from there. Sure. So now I'm kind of calling myself an accidental grief researcher. Um, It's nothing I chose as a career path. You know, years ago, I have a master's degree in public policy and um, have taken very limited structured courses in my lifetime in terms of, you know, topics like grief and grieving until recently. And this came about for me out of necessity, really. Seven years ago, I found myself in really just a debilitating position emotionally, physically, spiritually, just everything. I had learned uh, by discovery that my marriage wasn't what I had believed it to be. And with um, you know three wonderful children and uh, a marriage and life that I loved, my world was flipped upside down. 
and Inside Out. And um, it began for me um, a very long, dark time and one in which I became desperate to feel better. It just was a horrible feeling day after day to live with the many different facets of such an experience. And I was desperate to feel better. And I so wanted to speak to somebody who had a similar experience to mine, just to kind of compare notes and feel normal, you know, and I couldn't find anybody. I spoke to very few people about it originally. And the first people I spoke to about it, really, I didn't share it um, largely for three months. You know, I made the discovery and found a therapist and told my closest friend. And um, that was about it. Nobody else knew the full scope, which is a, ended up being a pretty good breadcrumb for me in, in terms of better understanding what was going on. And as time passed and I wasn't finding anybody to talk to, nobody seemed to have anybody that had a similar experience, I grew more weary and really began to try to intellectualize my way out of this pain, which as practitioners, I know you're probably giggling because we can't do that, right? We have to go through the whole thing. We can't just think our way through it. Unfortunately not, right? Because it would be great if we could. I tried for everybody. Let's just skip it. Yeah, I think we all try to do that. And then we realize that that works a little bit, but doesn't really get us all the way. Right, right. But for me, you know, kind of taking this first step to understand it ended up being just a portal to everything else. And and I knew that my grief was different. I couldn't quite name why. And just kind of one thing after the next led me to uh, hypothesize what it was that made this grief different and subsequently develop some tools to work toward healing. So can you share with us then what it was that you were able to hypothesize? What did you discover in all of this research? Sure. So the short answer is hope. The short answer is that hope is something that presents for individuals who are experiencing the loss of a loved one who is still living. And hope is a wonderful thing. We love hope, right? It's a virtue in in Catholicism. We need hope through this human experience, which is so trying. So I'm, I'm not a naysayer to hope. What I found, though, eventually, I did find a group of women who had my experience. And through our conversations, through our circles, through our evolution, I began to hypothesize that we were experiencing something that I couldn't quite name, turned out to be hope, but that I could see us all going through it at different times. I could see behaviors change, almost like a a switch was flipped and our perspective had changed. And I couldn't figure out what it was that was at the root of this. And using kind of um, those observations and a survey that I helped uh, launch and, and then later review indicated that, in fact, it is hope that was becoming present in these situations. And, you know, ambiguous grievers, whether it's to betrayal, trauma, discovery, divorce, familial estrangement, gender identity, incarceration, um, addiction, Alzheimer's, there's so many different areas in which people experience ambiguous grief. And what I found through my research is that when hope presents, it has the ability, depending on how the griever meets that hope, 
to either help us along on our path of healing or keep us in a cycling situation or just slide us right down to complicated grief, prolonged grief disorder. Can you talk a little bit about that hope, what that might look like, or or give us kind of examples of that kind of hope? Because like you, you said, we we need hope, but it can also keep us stuck in this kind of grief. And I think that can be so confusing to unravel. Oh, it is so confusing. You're right. And, you know, for me and for many that I've worked with and observed, hope presents in the form of fixing. So there are these two kinds of hope, internal hope and external hope is what pops up. And I like to kind of personify hope as a double agent. Hope is working both sides. And this was, as it turns out, what kept popping up that I was observing in my circle, you know, where that like, what is this that is switched in her, you know, or in me? Um, Internal hope is that hope wherein we are focusing the attention, directing it on ourselves in the present with attention to our life as it is now, not as it once was and not as we wish it to be, right? But this hope, this internal hope of saying, I'm focusing on myself. I am working to heal my wounds. I am working to create a life that I love, right? That's internal hope. And that hope will lead us to healing, right? We're able to regenerate when we, when we do that. Um, external hope, this other side, the other part of this double agent is external hope. And external hope is when we are putting our attention on another person, when we're putting our attention on our loved one, in my case, it was the relationship I had lost. And I'm thinking, okay, how do I fix this? I'm going to hope that he does the work. I'm going to hope that my marriage is able to be restored. I'm going to hope that we can work through this. That's the goal, right? I I loved my marriage. I was in no way looking for a way out. You know, this was a total surprise. Um, utter shock and trauma. This was an absolute uh, betrayal trauma that I did subsequently just so much work in finding my way back to baseline, you know? And so when we're in that external hope, it might look like problem solving, right? Like, okay, I'm going to, I found this place for him to go. And I think if he goes here, I think this is really going to help. Well, Epictetus, right? The, um, ancient philosopher, Greek philosopher, speaks. he used to speak about how we really can only focus on that which is in our control, right? And he says, if it concerns anything that is not in your control, it should mean nothing to you. And I think that's a little, I think it's a little aggressive, Epictetus, but I think that in my situation and for those in similar situations to say, if it is not in my control, not that it means nothing to me, but I choose myself. And so internal hope is choosing the self. And it doesn't feel good because it's not familiar. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I agree with that 100%. What you just said, I agree with it. Like needing to focus inward, right? Needing to be with yourself and have that internal hope. However, for so many of our listeners, so many of our clients, and I think this probably would have been you as well, right? Throughout your experience, when somebody is hoping 
to heal their marriage after betrayal. There seems to be a need to focus on the other person in terms of how can I stay with this person if they don't do something that's going to help me feel safe, if they don't do things that are trustworthy and recreate, restore trust, how will I be able to stay in this relationship? So I'm curious what you would say about that. Oh, gosh. Yes, I I relate to that so much. And I, I look back at that version of me and just want to give her a hug, you know, frankly, and for my friends or, you know, just people I care about who are in that space, I'm just so rooting for them because that's a horrible place to be. It's waiting for a train that may never come. And we give such vigilance to the wait, you know, and there's a lot to be honored in not giving up on your loved one. I understand that. And when there may come a time when you stop choosing external hope and it feels like you're giving up on your loved one, but you're not, you're choosing yourself. And I assume your listeners will be familiar with um, integrity abuse, right? If If you've been betrayed, then you understand that integrity abuse is involved. But you know, when, for me, when I got to a certain place of just being tired of finding the answers, I began to see that it is integrity abuse of myself to not start working to heal me. And when you don't have trust or security or safety in your relationship, it is not the other person's responsibility to bring that to you. I believe you have to bring it to yourself. I learned after a lot of trial and error, I'm the only one who can make myself feel that way. And once I know what it feels like, securely rooted within me, I'll be able to recognize when I feel or don't feel safe, secure, and feeling like I have trust in my relationship. And the more I did that work, the more I could catch myself cycling in and out of this hope. And it's tough. One of the things I was thinking about as you were talking was, I definitely see that internalized hope as so empowering because you're taking back your power to control your life. But I'd also love to know about this space where you're in between or, or moving between those two things. And what makes it so hard to move from that external kind of hope to the internal hope? Oh, love. Love is what makes it hard, right? Um, Whether it's a deep love for your partner or a deep abiding love for your relationship, whether it's your faith that tells you you are to abide and stay and find a way, whether it's fear of being alone or starting over or on and on, right? It's a love of what was that makes it so hard to shift into that other gear and take that other path. And that's why so many ambiguous grievers cycle on this roundabout over and over, going in and out of external hope. I've not met anybody personally who has gone right into internal hope and said, well, I'm done with that partner. And you know, I'm on my way now and I'm taking exercise class and look at my new hair. And, you know, I've not met anybody who's jumped right to that 
there's a process you're talking about. Like there's a process, you have the discovery, you experience the trauma, you have external hope. This other person who you love so much, you've invested so much is going to do the things that they need to do in order for you to heal, right? And that goes on for a while and that can be putting the focus on that person, go into this program, get into this group, see this therapist, read this book, listen to this podcast. And that can keep you, the betrayed partner, stuck. So I hear what you're talking about is most people do start off on that trajectory. And what you have found in your own personal experience and with others that you've met on this journey, there is a gradual transition into this place of internal hope that really can lead to healing. Absolutely. And what you might be experiencing as hope is popping up and down are the other very common experiences we associate with grief, right? Which we know, firstly, from the Kubler-Ross model. So it's anger, denial, bargaining, depression, acceptance. I had all of those and then some in all the various forms, and I'm sure your listeners can relate. It is like going into a funhouse where everything is distorted and the emotions, these stages come and go, these experiences flow in and out, they overlap, they cha-cha, and hope is simply among them, right? So I can be raging mad, how could you? And then think, oh, wait a minute. I remember hearing on that podcast about this therapy. Oh, maybe that's the ticket. You know, and then suddenly I'm in hope again for my partner. But really what I'm in hope again for when I take a closer look, which is painful and ugly and hard, so not fun to do, is I am in hope for what was. And I don't want to lose that. But it's the harsh reality is that it is already gone. I was just going to say, and when you're grieving someone who is still alive, there is that hope. That's what I got from your book right away is that's sort of that sixth element to the stages of grief, right? For ambiguous grievers, the person's alive. And so there remains hope that they can change. They can go back and become the person you thought that they were. Right. And in the relationship you had with them, you know, and especially difficult are child parent relationships, you know, whether it's estrangement, uh, addiction, you know, where parents are holding vigil or the child is holding vigil. It happens both ways. And it's a confusing time for everybody, right? But hope is not something we have when our loved one passes away, right? If, a, if we lose a parent to death or a spouse to death, we grieve a whole different way. Now, I don't think we do grief very well in our society as it is. I think we have a lot of room for improvement in the way that we meet people in their grief, and um, support people in their grief, and talk about our own grief. So if we don't do death grief very well, and we know we are all going to be grieving at some point in our lives, somebody we love who's died a physical death, right? If we don't do that grief well, how can we be expected to know that what we're experiencing is an ambiguous grieving process? Because we don't even talk about that, much less know it has a name or a process for healing. 
And then I was going to add, it's so invisible too, because on the outside, everybody can see the relationship that it's still there and no one knows what's going on. And like what you were saying earlier, so many of the people that talk to us or come to Helping Couples Heal feel so alone in this ambiguous grief because, you know, ambiguous is, it's just the right term for it because it, it just, it signifies that loneliness to me, that isolation, that unclearness, and it's just so incredibly painful. Right, yes. When someone dies, it's very obvious. There's an absence of this person and the world can see it, right? People know it's very clear. And we were talking before this interview about how I'd read an article written by one of our coaches a couple of years ago about how nobody brings a casserole to the grieving person from betrayal trauma, right? Who's lost their relationship. No one's coming over the way they would if a person has physically died. And it it really is a representation of how we are in our culture, where we respond to something when we can see physical proof, right? And when there's no physical proof, you're left to deal by yourself. Right, exactly. So many years ago, I actually was diagnosed with cancer and I was still working. I worked through the whole experience and I was watching how my clients and seeing how my clients at the time were suffering so greatly and so deeply with real trauma and depression and all of that pain. And they felt, like Dwayne said, so alone because it was happening internally. They couldn't share it with people. The people that they did didn't understand it or were all focused on why are you staying with this person, you know, all of that. And in my cancer experience, I actually ended up losing my hair because I had chemo. And so people saw it. They literally looked at me and they were aware something's wrong here, right? This person's sick or this has happened. And they were, everyone wanted to show up. Everyone wanted to help in some way. What can I do? What can I get? Where can I be? Where can I drive you? And I realized at that time, I felt tremendous compassion for my clients because I knew that since nobody can see it, it wasn't visible. They were left to suffer by themselves. Oh, gosh, absolutely. Thank you for sharing that. And, you know, as you were talking, it two points came up. One, it reminds me of the differently abled population where if you're not in a wheelchair or using a cane for sight support or, you know, something that's visibly outward tells us that this person might need a little more compassion and patience and kindness and maybe a hand. If it's a disability that we don't see, we have little patience and think, you know, gosh, what a, what a weirdo, what a jerk, or, you know, whatever the case may be, we just, we're so quick to judge. And, and the second thing that I thought of, as you were saying that Marnie, is that you're so right about the invisibility of this grief. And of course, everybody handles their experiences differently, but, oh, I imagine um, that it's not so far off to think that when you are not sharing what is going on in your experience, it might be because shame and embarrassment are there, right? Ambiguous grievers can internalize shame and embarrassment, even if it's not theirs to carry, even if it's, you know, not something they should, you know, quotes, be feeling. That shame and embarrassment of a betrayal, of facing your community with this is what happened, that's enough to isolate an individual even further. And, you know, somebody said to me, well, why didn't you talk about it? when this was happening. And I said, because I didn't want to be talked about, right? It's, yeah. this is not a scoop to give. This is not salacious. This is trauma. And I'm, I'm not okay. Right. And of course, 
had my loved one died on that terrible Tuesday morning, as I say, I would have, and I write about this in the book, right? I would have notified my loved ones immediately. I would have started on funeral preparations. I would have chosen the pallbearers. I would have thought so hard about the eulogy, would have started a scholarship fund, you know, in honor, in, in memoriam. I did none of those things. And in not being able to ritualize it and not having our grief witnessed, which is what we need. We need our grief witnessed because that validates our love and that validates our loss. And I loved my marriage and I felt like a widow, but nobody treated me that way. That's just so painful to hear. And just, it just breaks my heart and how hard that is for so many people out there suffering. And then especially partners that are in the beginning stages of this and then that stage there, because it's so confusing and it's so overwhelming. And you're torn between this internal and external hope. And where do you draw the line? And what do I do? And how do I cope? And it breaks my heart. It's heartbreaking for me too, to hear that, because I think that in the human experience, Being alone in our pain and not being seen is one of the loneliest, most painful experiences that we can have. And as you were talking, Stephanie, I felt like you were literally speaking the words of our listeners, the people that come in for our help and are desperate for support, desperate to be seen, desperate to be heard and understood because it is so lonely. And you're right, no one's coming over. And there's no rituals, right? You're not putting this person to rest. This person is still alive and breathing. Yeah, and to add another layer of fresh hell to the experience, the person that you would normally turn to is the person who's inflicted this. Yeah. And I see that all these years later, this is still so painful for you to talk about. It's been seven years and I'm just... Yes, it's hard. I loved my marriage. Yeah. And I've healed. I'm healing. You know, seven years ago, I couldn't have a phone conversation, much less, you know, look at I'm dressed. I'm, <laughs> I have mascara on, you guys. I'm the whole package today. But, you know, with every grief, with every loss, it's learning to integrate, right? Because life goes on. And whether the person has died a physical death or they live a few miles away, all that we can control is ourselves and how we want to move forward. And so, you know, I think a big misnomer about grief of all kinds is that we do some things to heal and it's linear and then we, you know, dust off and we move on, but we don't. Our grief becomes part of us. And f- for so long, you know, my therapist used the word recovery with me, you know, you're you're working toward recovery, you're working toward life on the other side. And as I went along and tried all of the modalities, name it, I've done it. I came to understand that I'm not moving toward recovery. I don't want to cover this grief. I don't want to cover it up and pretend it didn't happen because in doing that, that doesn't honor my marriage. That doesn't honor myself and all of the work that I've gone through and that I've done to heal and continue to do. And so I I think it's moving toward a regeneration. You know, we have the opportunity to grieve and heal. I mean, I'm doing both right now. I'm tearing up and I'm smiling. And I think we have to learn to live in that and. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've had some large losses in my life too and had to deal with not ambiguous grief in the same way, but making friends with grief. And grief becomes really important in informing our lives and the choices that we're going to make going forward. It It's hard and it's painful and it comes at odd times and not when you want it to be there. Yet, if we can embrace it, we really get the valuable message from it. But it's hard. And I think what's harder is when you talk about this ambiguous grief, I think it just adds, like you said, this level of complication to it because it's not so black and white. Right. Your tears just a few moments ago, and I've seen it throughout the interview, your tears and at the same time, the healing that you've done and the healing you're continuing to do really show and represent what this experience is about. Healing does not mean that there's no more pain, that there's no sadness, right? That you're not mourning still what you thought you had or what you, or that love that you talked about. You said it several times, you loved your marriage. You were not looking for an out. So I, I really see that in you today. I see, and I feel like it's just, it's what our, our listeners experience that even as they move forward, even as they find healing. I think there's this, like you said, a misnomer that in order to heal, that means you're no longer feeling pain from the past or from the loss. If our listeners take nothing else from today's interview, I hope that that's what they will take. That healing does not mean that you never look back and that there's never tears, right? Right. That's just not true. That's not true. No. And and I feel that, you know, just the two of you creating this space for me to talk about this is part of my healing. This is a part of continued healing, right? Because grief is love's invoice. I'm going to be paying this bill for a long time. It's proportionate to the love. And, you know, my barista transferred recently and I'm not crying about it, right? Because that relationship wasn't there. But when it's somebody that is so important to us, and in my particular situation, it's my partner, it's my husband. And in a marriage, nobody except the person you've married has publicly vowed to love, honor, and care for you. Like our parents don't even do that when we're born, right? That's implicit, but when you get married, it's explicit. Exactly. And so to have the one person who's explicitly said they would X, Y, and Z, in fact, not do X, Y, and Z, you know, it's debilitating in a number of ways. And then not having that person there to lean on, right? And and help. And then just to add just one more piece to that rubble pile is that so many people that I've worked with and myself included have this urgency to fix it because it's making our partners uncomfortable, right? The partner who has done the betraying and is saying they want to stay in the relationship and and work to heal, right? They've not left. Um if you could hurry up, please, and thank you with your tears, what more do you want me to do, right, um, is also pressure on the griever yeah. to feel better. I just so wish that individuals who do the betraying, what I wish they would understand is that, you know, here in our lifetimes, we, of course, we know that we don't know what the future holds. We understand that. And so nobody is counting on knowing what the future holds. But when an individual suddenly doesn't know their past, it is incredibly destabilizing to think back on innumerable moments 
and experiences and have to question it, have to wonder, that quickly leaks into, can I trust myself? How did I miss this? How did I not know? If I can't trust myself, how can I, and I can't trust you, how do I trust the world? Yeah. It shifts that person. It changes them. And their healing is on their timeline. Their decision to stay, to leave, to work however they need it, that is solidly their decision. The betrayer has forfeited their right to that decision. I can't agree with you more on that. The betrayer, if they really want to heal from this and they've done the betrayal, they have to accept that fully and let go and let the betrayed have their own timeline if they want that. And I I cannot agree with you more with that. I think every one of our listeners who's a betrayed partner is going to be so relieved to hear you just say that. And what I also hope is, you know, a lot of our listeners are the ones who have betrayed their partners. And so I feel a lot of um, gratitude that you just said what you did, because I think they need to hear that, right? And hopefully that's an aha moment of, oh, wow, let me look at what I've been doing. I've been pressuring my grieving spouse or my grieving partner. I've been pressuring him or her to move on because I've moved on. I'm sober, right? I'm sober. I'm in a group. I've done the work. I'm working the steps in a 12-step program. Why is he or she still you know, in a fetal position on the ground or still going to groups and still you know, saying that they feel traumatized? And you are so right that the way that they conceptualize that, they're trying to get out of the pain of all of it. They want that to be over. And all of us do. Who wants to stay in pain? It's like what we spend our lives trying to avoid. Right. Absolutely. And I would think that for the betrayer who is doing the work and is in those individual groups and in the individual sessions and in group sessions doing the work, they were the one who was acting out in the marriage and then are by discovery or disclosure, whichever, are now wanting to heal. You know, I have empathy. I understand that that is a wound, whereas, you know, something unhealthy was being used to self-soothe, Right. So I have empathy for that. And I would just say to the betrayer, if that's you, it's a nice opportunity to then turn your empathy onto your partner and say, well, I know how it feels. I know that it feels awful when there's this horrible piece of you that needs soothing and you can't figure out how to fill that hole. So for somebody who's soothing by grieving or by hot baths or by you know any number of ways that are what a clinician would say is a healthy way to meet grief. Kiss your lucky stars that that's how they're choosing to do it and give them some space. (laughs) Absolutely. I have a question that I'm wondering about, and I think a lot of partners in this situation struggle with this because when they're thinking about staying in the relationship or leaving the relationship, and a lot of times it's like, if I grieve this, that means the relationship is over and there's no future. So I almost have to stop myself from grieving or I can't go into the grieving process. It gets confusing because a lot of partners do want to stay in their relationship. They do want it to heal. But I would love to kind of dissect that a little bit more and make it a little bit clearer for our listeners. Yeah. Well, I think being able to approach it with a both and mentality might be helpful. It it certainly was to me as I began to understand that you know, it makes sense to our brains and based on the way that our culture 
interacts with grief, that if we're grieving the loss of our marriage, it feels like a finality to it, right? That it's over, that it's done and we don't want it to be. And so I am not giving it my tears. I am going to work. I'm doing all of the things I'm carrying on. And in doing that, we're not honoring the loss. And the hard reality, which we've touched on, is that that relationship has already been lost. That relationship is no longer what it once was, right? Because new information has been presented that has changed the dynamic of the relationship. It has changed the relationship. And and we're working in denial if we tell ourselves anything other than that, right? So simply acknowledging, oh, this is denial. I can see that I'm working in denial here. Let me get out of that. Um, Then being able to name it and see it can I think be a good step in getting to the and, right? The both and, because we can grieve as we heal. We can grieve and still have hope for our marriage, right? We can grieve and have hope for ourselves. And I've seen this. I've seen couples come back to each other, go away and come back and go away and come back because they're both individually doing that work of healing And then they're coming back as new people. They're coming back as different people and deciding, do we go on together from here, right? And then, of course, in some cases, one person is, you know, willing to do the work and the other person is in denial, right? Like, what can that person do who's trying to do all of the work? You can't. You cannot put your marriage on your back and carry it all the way through. And in that case, it's a both and of self, right? It's I can grieve and I can choose to heal. I can understand that sometimes couples have to heal individually and I don't know what the future holds. Yeah. And that's a scary place to be, especially when your world is shattered in front of you and you thought you had some solidness in your life and then it turns out not to be that. I mean, it's just so, it is really overwhelming. Well, you described a little while ago about this is the person who explicitly committed to keeping you safe, right? Explicitly committed to having your back. That's what we talk about as clinicians or what we refer to as attachment trauma, right? Our primary attachment figure is this person who's explicitly committed to have our back. And that attachment rupture does feel threatening. It leaves somebody in that trauma response of, oh my God, I am alone. It is such an existential trauma, an existential crisis. I think going back to what people don't see, they don't see that. They don't understand the depths of grief, the depths of trauma that come from being betrayed by the one person in the world who has committed, usually not always, but in front of, you know, maybe God, friends, family, um, it committed to doing this thing, this life thing with you and keeping you safe. So I really want to acknowledge that. And as I was just saying that, I saw your book in the background. I see your book there and I have it right in front of me as well. And again, it's called Soul Broken. So before we actually switch into talking about what does it mean to heal, from this experience, can you just share about the title of your book? What does that mean, Soul Broken? Yeah, um, 
I define it as the feeling of anguish that is onset by the loss of an important relationship and often a loss of ourselves, a loss that is unwitnessed and void of validation. And, you know, it's one thing to be heartbroken. We all have had series of heartbreaks in our lives, whether our beloved pet has run away or, you know, our first love ends things right before, you know, prom or something like we all have these when people share with me their first memories of heartbreak it stretches into childhood but to be soul broken is to be in anguish over this loss of something that usually a person who you identify as part of yourself right and so when we're inextricably linked to these relationships and you see yourself as a wife as a husband as a mother whatever the case may be when that relationship is severed you've lost a part of your own identity and your beloved. And that is a level outside of heartbreak, right? I say that that extends to being soul broken and, you know, finding your way back. And this is kind of the, there's nothing funny about it, but what I found interesting is that in my healing and in finding my way through this, I found my way back to myself. I found my soul. I found who I am at my root, at my core. So Stephanie, I think that's such an important part of this interview and I want to make sure we talk about it. So can you share, how did you go from the experience of soul brokenness to healing? On my own, without my partner, with a series of clinicians and shamans and so many books, um, others who'd gone through the experience, who served as mirrors, who I could say, oh, that is not where I want to be in five years. Or, okay, he's onto something or she's onto something. How are you doing that? You know, and, and really just being a detective of my own life, finding what soothed my soul, what helped me heal. And being able to do it on your own is key, right? Especially coming out of a partnership of 20 years. This was hard. This is really hard. And yet I can't imagine doing this in tandem. It's individual soul work. It is you and yourself. And again, I, I named so many modalities and some stuck, some didn't, but all were additive. I think it's like that journey metaphor. We have to use that because we have to try all of these things to heal ourselves. What's going to work for one person may not necessarily work for us. And we have to be open and explore all the possibilities and make a commitment to, I guess, you know, heal ourselves and and empower ourselves to move through it. Exactly. And for me, it all started with intention, you know, and, and setting an intention about how I wanted to go through this experience, which was just crushing. And really, it was about, I know who I am. And when we get quiet, we can find that whisper, you know, we know who we are. And I was committed to staying in my own integrity and not betraying myself because suddenly I felt that I was the only person I had and I had to be able to count on myself. So I set forth that intention to stay in my integrity and every opportunity I had, every modality or person, I would bump it up against my own integrity and say, does that feel in integrity for me? Because I could not betray myself. 
I loved that when you said that earlier, because we do, Dwayne and I talk so much about integrity abuse. And, you know, for those who may not be familiar with it, it's really the patterns of abuse that accompany the betrayal, right? In order to have a secret life and a double life, you you have to lie and manipulate and deceive and transfer blame and all of these different things. I love that you took it back to yourself and you talked about how you need to stop the behaviors and the things that were out of integrity for you in relation to how you treated yourself. Like I call that self-betrayal, right? Mm -hmm. When we are in that Mm -hmm. integrity abuse, when it comes to ourselves, it's because we are engaging in this self-betrayal, which could be existentially, that could be worse than somebody else betraying us. Right. That's hard to sleep with, you know, and look in the mirror. And for me, I found that the feeling I would get when I was making a choice, like if something doesn't feel good, it might be self-betrayal, right? If you're getting that gut flag, if there's something popping up, take a closer look because that's our warning system, you know? And you mentioned something earlier I'd love to just touch on, which was attachment theory. And I talk about this in the book, but I've put together a minimal survey. I've not done any work on it aside from that. But as I began to really better understand grief and the process that we go through when we lose someone not to a physical death, I began to think about, you know, letting go is so overused. Let go, let go. You just need to let go. Worst advice ever, right? Oh, you just need to let go. Oh, I do. Let me, how? Let me write that down, right? Let Let me me just, let me switch the switch. Right. Let me, oh, I just need to let go. And you know, how do we let go, Elsa? How do we let go? And, um, (laughs) you know, it's, she doesn't tell us. And so I started to look at how did I detach? How do I see others detaching or not detaching? And what came up for me, and this is kind of the stuff I'm working on now, is, is our attachment theory responsible for our detachment? Is how we are attached what we can expect in our detachment, right? And I think for clinicians such as yourself who are working with individuals who aren't sure what they're doing as the next step of their betrayal trauma, you probably have some pretty good breadcrumbs when you can crack the code of their attachment theory, right? And I started to see how, oh, well, wait a minute. Of course, a disorganized attachment personality is going to be behaving this way, right? I hate you, don't leave me you know, and an anxious person is, oh, it's my fault and I'm going to change me. And the anxious attachment tends to stay a little bit longer, a lot longer in the external hope focus, right? And on the other side, for somebody who's thinking like, where is my grand gesture? Why isn't he in group? Why isn't he working on this? Oh, well, he's he's an avoidant attachment style. So he's avoidant in this now. Of course he is. And Again, I have no quantitative data to support that. And when I was writing the book, I was looking for a white paper or some information about this, assuming it had been researched, and found nothing. I wrote the book in 2021. It was published in fall of 22. I hope that others are starting to work on it. I hope that it's something that is explored and talked about more because I think that that can be a a breadcrumb for our own healing if we can get into that. A decade ago, when I got into this field, I don't think I heard the word attachment as it related to betrayal trauma. And what I can say, which I think is a really positive thing, is that now it is talked about a lot, right? There is so much about 
the experience of an attachment trauma sort of being the same thing as betrayal trauma. So that's really important because what I think it does is it helps the person who's done the betrayal recognize, as we talked about a little bit earlier, the depth of the grief that the betrayed partner experiences as a result of betrayal. And so, Stephanie, I mean, I could talk to you forever about this, and I think our listeners can listen forever because you are the voice of validation and also the voice of hope about what can be on the other side of all of this pain. But I would love to take a few minutes for you to talk about some of the things that you address in your book, because your book's not really about the details of your discovery, right? Your story about what did you find on that Tuesday, right? It's about your experience of ambiguous grief and then how do you heal through it? Like this is called, this book is Soul Broken, a guidebook for your journey through ambiguous grief. So can you just speak to what does that look like? What is the guidebook? What's the blueprint? Well, I think from a big picture perspective, it is to let others know they are not alone. This is the guidebook I wish I would have had seven years ago, right? Something to say you are not alone. This is awful and you can and will get through it. And here are some things to help you along the way. So some of those things, as you had mentioned earlier, involve trial and error. You know, EMDR therapy, somebody recommended that to me and I poo-pooed it. And then two others, therapists, professionals are recommending things to me. And I'm thinking, oh, you don't know me. Um, (laughs) Well, it's a humbling experience, right, to bear yourself to a clinician who, in fact, doesn't need to know you to know a lot of your answers, right? So from the other side of the chair, from you two, right? It's another thing we have to get our arms around, right? In the wake of the trauma, in the wake of the confusion and the isolation and the shame and the embarrassment, now a stranger is suggesting prescription pharmaceuticals, you know, for depression and sleep. And, you know, I think that I shared so much of the book in the book of my own trial and errors to say, try it all. It's okay. You never know what is going to unlock inside of you. And if you can trust the person, you know, surround yourself with people that you do feel safe and trusting with. And, you know, it's been seven years for me. And I feel like I vet people now, even still, as we talked about previously, because I'm responsible for myself and I'm the protector of myself. And I'm in a wonderful partnership now that I never would have seen coming all those years later. And of course, was indignant about when asked initially, oh, do you think you'll date again? How dare you? No. You know, it was just absolutely not. But, you know, in the moment, in those first few months, years for me, um, it was a non-starter. No, we're not talking about that. So you've learned to trust again. I have. And it is a slow process. For me, it was a slow process. For me, it was a wonderful lesson, a wonderful lesson. And having the right person, of course, is you need somebody who's patient and understanding. In the very beginning, when two friends that I, two, we had two mutual friends in common, and um, I thought he might kind of have an idea of where I was coming from, but I just put it on the table on our very first meeting and said, I have a bubble wrapped heart. I am not looking for a long-term relationship, but hi, nice to meet you kind of thing, right? (laughs) I was lonely. I was lonely. It had been three years 
And I was beginning to feel lonely. And my therapist was kind of nudging me in that direction, which again, I thought was offensive in the beginning when she first mentioned it. And then she backed off and then came back to it. And I'm so glad she did. And it gave me the courage to say, okay, well, why not? What, what harm is there in an hour of meeting allegedly a nice person? You know, let's see. I'll be the judge of that. And yeah, in trusting myself, kind of that spread into every aspect of my life, you know? And, and I think, you know, overall, kind of getting back to your question about these nuggets in the book, whether you're experiencing ambiguous grief as your listeners may be, you know, experiencing it from betrayal trauma and also from an estrangement in a relationship. You know, it's not like we have one ambiguous grief and we're done. They might overlap in different parts of our lives. And there are exercises and tools throughout the book that I have found helpful, some more than others. But, you know, keep yourself open, not only to other relationships in the future that may bring you things you never knew you needed, to being open to ideas and ways of healing from other cultures and society. I traveled to Costa Rica and sat with shamans for seven days in plant medicine ceremonies. That is not anything (laughs) I could have ever imagined myself doing and yet being so desperate to feel better and looking for modalities that weren't dangerously self-soothing, right? You know, I said, "I'm, I'm in plant medicine for a thousand, thousands of years okay, I vetted it, went, and for me, it proved to be very helpful. And so I touch on that. But medication, plant medicine, all the different modalities, I can't tell you what will work for you, nor no more than you can tell your listeners what will work for them. But here are a whole bunch of things that went through my trial and error, and I hope something sticks for you. I think that word that you just used, desperate, I mean, I really think that kind of sums it up, that when you're in that, the depths of anguish, the depths of despair, Mm -hmm. we will do anything to find relief. And hopefully uh, for our listeners, well, for everybody out there, they'll choose the self-soothing things that are actually not destructive, that are in alignment with loving ourselves. You mentioned before, you wish you can go back and give that person a hug, yourself a hug. I loved hearing that because it was so filled with compassion and love and empathy Unfortunately, so many of us, you know, when we have that kind of pain and we're so desperate to feel better, we can find sort of immediate gratification or immediate relief. And that's through things that are not going to ultimately be loving and good for us. Right. And if you could care for yourself the way that you would care for your six-year-old self, that's a lens in which to look at it. Uh, How would you care for a small child who needed compassion and tenderness? You know, being able to tune into yourself in that way and finding that alignment in your own self-compassion, it might feel a little uncomfortable at first only because we're not raised generally in that way, you know, to offer ourselves that compassion and grace and to know that this is not fixable. The relationship is not going to return to what it once was. The relationship can return. It may or may not return, but it definitely won't be what it once was because it's new now, right? And I think ultimately one of my biggest lessons in this experience is that although it is uncomfortable and painful and all of those emotions, feelings that we would ascribe as negative, you know, hard, we don't, they're, they're uncomfortable. As much as that has been the case, grief really is a portal to our greatest and highest self. If you are grieving, you have punched a ticket 
to get to know yourself on a new level. And if we're living in this world, working toward bettering ourselves, working toward becoming a better version of ourselves, grief can help you level up if you're willing to lean into the discomfort and um, do that work, which, you know, is hard to hear early on, but I believe is true. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on Helping Couples Heal. It's just been a pleasure to meet you, to hear your story, to share your genuineness, your hope, even in this ambiguous grief. I just really enjoyed our conversation and just thank you for coming on. Thank you, Dwayne. I want to share on a personal level, when I started to read the book, it's obviously because I had really connected to the excerpt that I'd read and the endorsement that I had read. And I started doing some of these exercises. I actually wanted to see what the reader would be experiencing. And, you know, total transparency, I didn't finish because I was really wanting to get through the whole book, <laughs> you know, prior to having a our interview. But I have to tell you that just starting that process, like exercise two, which is the focus of your grief, just looking at that gave me hope and a feeling of being empowered, right? Because sitting and beginning that process of looking within and doing the hard work, that in itself was so empowering and felt really good. In fact, as I'm thinking about it now, you might see my, like I'm, I'm smiling. I, I have sort of goosebumps because you provided a possible blueprint. And going back to hope, we need hope. It's such an important thing. We need hope to look towards something down the road, something to feel good about, something to believe in. So I'm so grateful that you wrote this book. And before we wrap up, can you just share very briefly about this wonderful community that you've created? Um, I'm so sorry, is it Rise Up Rooted? Yeah, I started Rise Up Rooted five years ago when I was getting my ideas together about ambiguous grief and unable to find anybody to be in community with to talk about this. This was, I couldn't find podcasts. I couldn't, you know, and it makes sense, right? Because it's difficult to put your face and your name into a group because we don't want to be talked about. And are we betraying our, now are we betraying our partner by coming into this group and kind of airing our situation? You know, it's, there's a lot of layers to it, but I started Rise Up Rooted um, just as an online resource where people submit their stories and I'll change out stories so people can read it and just feel that they're not alone. You know, and I provide resources, books, TED Talks, you know, different things that might be helpful and additive. That's wonderful. So how can people find that? Well, the best way is to go to my website, which is stephaniesarazin.com. And um, I'm doing one-on-one -on -one work with individuals, really helping them to honor their grief, honor their loss. Why not have a faux funeral, which you read about in the book, where we don't have a eulogy or a funeral where we can stand as widows and receive our guests, right? Because our loved one is still alive. That doesn't mean that we can't still memorialize and honor through ceremony and ritual what that relationship meant to us. It was wildly transformative in my healing, having two guests share with me and allow me to share with them and um, grieve that relationship together. So finding my website will be the best way to find everything else, including how to order the book or find me on social media. Well, I'm sorry that you had the experience that brought you here, but actually also 
grateful to hear, like you said, that it's been a portal to something much bigger, right? To this relationship with yourself that perhaps you never would have gotten. So I'm, I'm sad. It's like that both. And I'm, I'm really sad for what happened in the pain. I'm really excited about the fact that you have shared that you're in a new, wonderful relationship that's filled with hope. And I'm just grateful for the work you're doing. Thank you for writing this book. Thank you so much for coming on, Stephanie. Thank you both for having me. But more than that, thank you so much for doing the important work of bringing this conversation to so many who need it. I wish I would have had you seven years ago. Thank you again. Take care. Thank you for listening to the Helping Couples Heal podcast, where your healing is the number one priority. If you'd like additional resources about betrayal trauma or to learn more about the workshop, please visit helpingcouplesheal.com. If you're finding the podcast helpful, please support Marnie and Duane in continuing to reach others impacted by betrayal trauma by leaving a review on iTunes and sharing this podcast with someone you care about. Once again, thank you for listening. We're grateful for your trust and look forward to continuing to support you on your journey of healing.